This time on the Rule Right Radio podcast with New York Mike. Trump is in the Republican Party. There are other people who say, look, I'd rather have someone else run for president, but if Trump wins the primary, I'll back Trump. So he's trying to divide. It's just totally political. It's all wrong. There's nothing new. Nothing changes in life. Nothing changes in politics. Nero fiddles as Rome burns. And in this case, of course, Biden and the Dems blame everybody and anything they can instead of taking responsibility for their own policies. If you put out a policy and it doesn't go right, take responsibility, fix it, change it, do what you need to do. No one's going to hold it against you. People might be a little upset, but if you change it, you know, it's like if you said, I think this um, inflation is going to be temporary. As soon as you see it's not, you say, wait a minute, we have a problem here. Step up. Take responsibility for your actions and your reactions to what's going on. But no, they won't. They've decided that climate change and white supremacy are the two biggest problems facing America. trousers and motorcycle boots and a black leather jacket with his name on the back. He does a patriotic podcast called Roll Ride Radio. His name is New York Mike and welcome to the show. This is Roll Right Radio on New York Mike. We're rolling right. Yep. I've got a lot to talk about today. There's a lot going on. But you know, it's been an interesting week. Well, actually, every week is an interesting week these days, isn't it? Wow, it's like you're blessed to live in interesting times. Oh, my God. So I want to start the day off because I heard a quote today. It was the best thing I've heard. <laughs> it, it was from who else? Elon Musk. And he said, bees don't waste their time explaining to flies that honey is better than shit. <laughs> you know, you try to explain something to these people out there. What's going on? You talk about all the things, obviously inflation and the border and this and that. And then sometimes someone's got to remind you, don't waste your time. But I'm not going to be defensive about it. I'm not trying to explain or over-explain or whatever. But you do have to try to convince some people that this is bullshit. And then we look at this whole Biden administration. Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that because I called this episode, Liar, Liar, the country's on fire. And it is about that. It's about the big lie and the constant lying, the constant promises that aren't kept. And we're going to talk about inflation. We're going to talk about energy. We're going to talk about electric cars, what's going to save the world, right? But I first want to talk about, on a personal basis, yesterday would have been my dad's 98th birthday. I know I talk about my dad once in a while, not enough probably, but it was interesting because I called my brother. Now, my brother Jackie passed away about three years ago, a little over three years ago, and I know that Jackie used to call my brother Scott and probably my sister Lori and I'm kind of remiss about doing those things. So he's not around, and I decided I'd call Scott, talk to him a little bit. I get in these moods where I just, you know, sometimes you just don't want to talk. It's Dad's birthday, and he's not here. He died young. And I call my brother Scott, who is a writer. He graduated from the Columbia School of Journalism. Now, he's a great guy. I love him. He's wonderful. I do resent it because when my dad died, my sister was four, Scott was 13, and I did what I had to do for the family, but they don't listen to me. <laughs> they vote for Democrats, they're, but, you know, still when it comes to family, even my brother Jackie, before he passed away, there were a few years where he and I talked regularly. He wasn't doing too good health-wise, and you know, you put these other things aside. You just have to. And I don't spend a lot of time 
trying to rewire whatever their brain is, wherever it's going. But we talk. So yesterday I called him and, you know, it's dad's birthday and we were talking. And, and we started talking about my brother as a journalist. He's always researching things, studying things, going to the library, doing all these things. And he does a lot of stuff on the family. And I've talked about my grandparents all came from Russia and different places that maybe are today actually Ukraine or Poland. I don't know, but Scott knows. He's, he does all this research and he knows all this stuff. And I guess he's writing. He keeps on talking about writing a book about all these things. Because we do have an interesting family history. But what we kind of centered on was the fact that when our grandparents came over, that they came over. And I know I've talked about, you know, all this stuff. But what we talked about... Not that I didn't know about it, but that what it was like in Russia at the turn of the 20th century, 1900. My grandmother came here. Scott said she was 30 years old. I, I'll believe him. He did the research. I thought she was a little younger. But she came over with three kids. Then they had my uncle and my dad here. But what was interesting as I started reminiscing about how she talked about how bad things were in Russia. The Cossacks running through the streets, running over kids and going in, destroying houses, properties, going into homes of people and taking whatever they wanted to take and just wrecking things, destroying things. Just the horror of the programs, as, as he defined it, as we're talking. And then I guess they came over in 1920. But my other set of grandparents came over earlier than that. And then Scott knows all the uncles, the aunts, and where they came from, how they did, and blah, blah, blah. And in talking about how horrible it was and how lucky they were to get out, because it wasn't more than maybe three, four, five months after my dad's parents got out, that the city, Kapula, that they were from, they destroyed all the Jews in the city, about 2,500. Scott has all the statistics and numbers, and I don't even know where he gets it. But within three or four months of them leaving, when they got out, when they did, and we were talking about how my grandfather, what he did to get out, and how uh, it was just incredible. And when you think about that, and you, you talk about it, and the reality just keeps coming up about how horrible life was for those people, and how many people that didn't get out and died, and it just lived that horror story. We're talking way before the Holocaust. We're talking about the 1900s, 190-whatever when my other set of grandparents came in over in 1920, right after the Russian Revolution, when my father's parents came, my, my grandfather, Mayor, who I was named after, <laughs> cool dude, and my grandmother, and my grandfather, Mayor, they came here in 1920, and I talk about how he came here, then went back to Russia. Uh, this ship, it's a 30-day, it's a month trip over the ocean to go back. So he came here on, on this boat, goes to Ellis Island, goes to the whole thing, goes back to get his wife and three little girls, comes back again, goes through. And then that was 1920. And he had a little candy store on Delancey Street. And he was killed in 1929 with five kids that my grandmother had to bring up. And... The reason he was killed was because he wouldn't pay off the mob. Now, I don't know the mob. Was it the mafia? Was it Murder Incorporated? Was it the Jewish mafia, the Italian mafia? I mean, Scott has a lot more details than I have. But whoever it was, my grandfather wouldn't pay him. And, then, you know, they killed him. So he got here to get away from the government or Cossacks or whatever it was that ran rampant, just killed people, 
took everything. Then he comes here, and you think about how hard life was from where they came and when they got here. They lived in a walk-up flat on the Lower East Side, which my grandmother lived in until they pushed her out. And then they moved into a government project. But that was in the 70s. So from 1920, 50 years, she lived in a little walk-up on Grant Street, 450 Grant Street, and lived in that little apartment where she brought up five kids. and. They didn't have welfare, social security, they didn't have all that other stuff. They just had themselves, their relatives, their families, but they had to just deal with it. And they did. We complain so much, try not to, but we all do. We complain so much about life and how hard it is. And we have all these organizations, to psychological help for this and that, and they'll overcome everything and all that. They had nothing. But they made it. These are the people that came from all over the world to make America great and greater and greater and greater again and again. And to me, it's inspirational. It makes me go home and just think about how hard it was for my dad. He joined the military at 17. The war's on. He's a 17-year-old kid in the Lower East Side. Goes in, comes out. He's 21. It has me, <laughs> a wife and a kid and nothing. And he's driving a cab and working in a luncheonette and driving, doing every whatever and going to school at night. This is what people do. This is the kind of fortitude. This is the kind of resiliency that made America great. And so many, I always talk about my friend, Jason Redmond. I mean, there's so many people going around talking and inspiring people and motivating people. This is truly a great country. I sent something to Jay. Jay's on his way to Chicago. I mean, this guy is an inspirational speaker. I've talked about it before. Retired Navy SEAL shot to hell. I mean, shot bullets in 07. I think they were shocked that he survived. He was in the hospital for a long time. Comes out, what does he want to do? Give back. He wants to give back. And he does. And so he's on his way to Chicago to speak to first responders. I saw his um, Instagram and I, I had to say something about, because you think about what they're going through in Chicago. And these are first responders, cops, firemen, ambulance, you know, medics and people that are just, imagine what it's like to be a cop in Chicago. Last year, Robert and I, Robert Patrick, we went to Boston on the way we stopped in Milwaukee at the Harley Museum. And we were in there and hanging around, having a great time. And there was a young guy at the table and somehow Robert got to talk. It turned out he was a, a Chicago cop. He looked like a kid. He, I don't think he was over 30 years old. Robert was talking to him for a while. I went over and said hello and talked to him. And he said, you know, he was gonna drive back that night. And it was so hard going back to Chicago. And I said, what makes you do it? He says, I want to be a cop. I want to help people. I want to make things better. And that's what I'm going to do. It's that kind of toughness, that commitment. And I told Jay when he said he's going there, it was right after 9-11. I mean, right after. And my friend Mike Warnock, who's a Port Authority cop, 37, there's 900 Port Authority police officers. And 37 of them were killed. Their home was the World Trade Center. And 37 of them died on that day. And they didn't have a widow's and orphan's fund. Michelle Dell of Hogs and Heifers, go there if you get to Vegas. She actually started it. They had insurance and this and that if somebody got killed. You cover what you think might occur, maybe a death, maybe two. Who has the resources to buy enough insurance to pay for the lives of 37 officers? And they didn't have it. They weren't prepared for it. And it took years for the federal government to decide, you know, how much to give to who. I mean, it was 21 years ago. Man, it seems like yesterday. But every year there's a, there was a love ride up in uh, Glendale. And... 
It was always in early November. Oliver Shaku, who owns Glendale Harley-Davidson, and he put the love right on years and years, 30-something years, I think. And he raised a lot of money, millions of dollars, for muscular dystrophy, and there were a few other local L.A. charities. And I called him up, and I said, Oliver, can you set aside something for the Port Authority PD? We've started the Widows and Orphans Fund and the whole story. And it's not something that he did on a regular basis, that, you know, adding a charity. It's a big production. It's a big ride. 15, 20,000 bikes. It's the biggest one-day bike event until Rolling Thunder came along. So I brought Mike out. He flew out, Michelle Dell, a few other people. He came out, went up on stage, and Oliver gave him a check for $40,000. And he's up on the stage. He's looking out. Over 20,000 bikers there. And they gave him a standing ovation. It was great. And I told Jay, I said, you know, even like little over a month after 9-11, he could not believe Mike was like blown away that people all the way in California understood, felt, had that empathy for what happened in New York. And he says, man, I'm in New York. He said, I can't believe the whole... And it made him feel so good. And when he went back with that check, the cops at the Port Authority PD, I was all friendly with the, the motorcycle cops, and they were just so appreciative, not just for the money, of course that's, but the fact that people all around the country, all the way in Los Angeles, cared enough. And so I gave that message to Jay because I wanted to relay that to these first responders in Chicago and let them know that we all care. It's something that hopefully will help them get through what they're going through because they're living this life in Chicago with the murders, the death, the crime, everything. It's upside down. But you know, our last podcast took on basically three subjects. The first was inflation. Then the SCOTUS situation, the um, Supreme Court and the memo and the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is really, it's an issue that's important. And of course, freedom of speech, the essence of the freedom in America is our freedom to speak, to say anything, and the right to redress the government. So no sooner was that podcast, which I called Freedom Isn't Free and Speech Should Be, no sooner was it out than President Biden makes a big speech about what he's doing about inflation. That was Tuesday morning, the day before the new inflation numbers came out. And it shows that the inflation rate is up at 8.3%. Now, I think when he took office, it was something like 1.4%. I'm not sure about that, but I'm pretty sure it was below 2%. And 8.3%, the highest in 40 years. And the price of gas nationally at $4.47 a gallon, the highest ever. So he chooses to give that speech and blame inflation on everything and say he's going to fix it. And I can't even remember the ridiculous things he was talking about to fix inflation by throwing more money at it. And of course, this wasn't a surprise to most of us. Not the fact that inflation was never going to be transient or that the price of gas was going to be higher or that Biden would, you know, make his speech before the numbers were published. What might have been a surprise to some, or at least a continuing disappointment, is how much he would both lie and deny. Of course, his stumbling and bumbling, he mispronounces names, he doesn't say this, it continues, and this is what he said, he blamed inflation, and he said this several times, sent on Senator Rick Scott from Wisconsin. Now look, he's known Rick Scott for years and years in the Senate, when he was vice president, when he was in the Senate, and now that he's president, I mean, he knows Rick Scott is from Florida. <laughs> but he does this. 
And the calls keep coming that he has dementia, that he needs to resign, be removed. I'm, I'm not arguing that point. But I also see something different. I see his stumbling as a way to hide and cover up or divert our focus from his outright lies and the outrageous statements or misstatements like his plagiarizing. If you don't remember, and most people probably don't, he ran for president. This was his third time. And I remember when he ran for president and his presidential campaign, they removed him because he plagiarized. I mean, we're talking a whole speech from some British professor that he claimed was his. And so they took him out of the campaign. It's clear to me he's obscuring his words so he thinks he'll get away with speaking out of his ass. So Rick Scott, being from Wisconsin, is as innocent a misstatement as inflation being temporary or caused by Putin or by Republicans or by saying that it's Republican policy to raise taxes on lower-income families. That's what he said. It's Republican policy. And the reason, again, I think he stumbles and bumbles, because he said it's Republican policy. I never heard of Republican policy that didn't include lowering taxes. But he says that's Republican policies because Rick Scott put that in the proposed whatever that he put out there, him and him alone. But Biden claimed that the Republicans, the Republican Party, want to end Social Security and Medicare. Yeah, all that because Rick Scott put in some proposal that he alone put out there. Nobody that I know of, not one, agreed to it, endorsed it, or anything else. And Scott did not say that. He didn't say those things the way Biden said he did. The context was different. Not only wasn't it endorsed, this is just Rick Scott, in the House or Senate, by the way, no one agreed. So it was clearly not a Republican proposal. Let's make sure we understand that. That's the first lie. It was an idea thrown out there by one Republican for the record. What Scott said was, everyone should have skin in the game. So he would have all the taxpayers pay something, not a lot, but something. And again, I'm not saying I agree. I like the idea that everyone should have skin in the game, but no matter how little. And he also said he would sunset Social Security and Medicare every five years so it could be revoted on. So Biden goes and turns it upside down, and he goes and says that that was Republican policies they put out. The furthest thing from the truth. Again, not one Republican, not one, agreed with it. He then goes on to talk about the Republicans who voted for him, might vote for him. He called us all, you know, MAGA Republicans. And then he called us ultra-magas, inferring the Republican Party's been hijacked by ultra-magas, blaming ultra-magas for inflation, raising tax. It goes on and on. I mean, this is a lie. You know, they used to say Trump wasn't presidential. You think this is presidential? I mean, this is backyard kind of alleyway bullshit. It's not even acceptable politics. I mean, everything else he's blaming that's gone wrong on these MAGA. He's trying to separate and divide the Republican Party. Because there are rhinos, there are people that, you know, are never Trump is in the Republican Party. There are other people who say, look, I'd rather have someone else run for president, but if Trump wins the primary, I'll back Trump. So he's trying to divide. It's just totally political. It's all wrong. There's nothing new. Nothing changes in life. Nothing changes in politics. Nero fiddles as Rome burns. And in this case, of course, Biden had the Dems blaming everybody and anything they can instead of taking responsibility for their own policies. If you put out a policy and it doesn't go right, take responsibility, fix it, change it, 
Do what you need to do. No one's going to hold it against you. People might be a little upset, but if you change it, you know, it's like if you said, I think this um, inflation is going to be temporary. As soon as you see it's not, you say, wait a minute, we have a problem here. Step up. Take responsibility for your actions and your reactions to what's going on. But no, they won't. They've decided that climate change and white supremacy are the two biggest problems facing America. The big lie, we have inflation, we have the crisis at the border, we have what's brewing with the wars in Europe and in the Ukraine, we have what's brewing in China. All these things are facing America, but they're only focused on climate change and white supremacy. The two biggest problems facing America, and put these two issues at the head of the class in priority so that funding cannot be questioned. So if they have to sacrifice because they're going to fix the climate, the climate is changing, oh, it's warming, it's freezing, we got to end the pipelines, we can't be drilling for oil and gas, everything, we're sacrificing. We're the ones who are paying the price. And this is what's giving credibility to the war on fossil fuels. It's a war on fossil fuels. Stop it. It's also what's distracting our military from focusing on defending the country and diverting attention to questioning the motives of every soldier. They're vetting every member of our military to weed out anyone that might be a white supremacist. It's just mind-boggling to me. Mind-boggling. Climate change is the issue that allows the government to close down gas and oil drilling, bring gas prices to the highest it's ever been, and fueling an inflation spiral that's bringing our economy to the brink of depression. And make no mistake, this is a man-made mistake. We're making this mistake with our eyes wide open. To repeat the facts over and over feels awkward, but it's important. We've gone from energy independence to being part of a global fuel and energy crisis. And I'm not talking about what's going on energy-wise in Europe, in China. They've had their problems. We were energy independent. We had enough oil, gas. We were exporters for the first time that I can remember. So all of a sudden, we're just like the rest of the world. We're suffering because we will not, will not, not cannot, will not drill for oil. We will not open up our pipelines. It's not because of Putin's war in Ukraine and not because of any Republican policy, but because the Democrats' war on fossil fuel and a mindless push for all electric vehicles. That, by the way, in my opinion, it's going to overwhelm the grid. 10%, I think it's actually more than that, of the grid's transmission lines and power transformers are over 25 years old. And the average age, let me just look up my notes. I think it's actually about 70% of the transmission lines and power transformers are over 25 years old. And the average age of power plants is over 30 years old. Today, our electricity needs that are more sophisticated, they're much more sophisticated. And The strain on the grid is higher than ever and also more vulnerable to the aging and the wearing out and the problems. Well, what about the hackers? You know, and the other methods that we may not be able to control, we can close down. Talk about the Russian hackers, the Chinese hackers. There's also local hooligan hackers, I'll call them. They can close down just huge parts of the grid, or just hit key critical areas of our defense system, or things that empower our everyday lives, from traffic signals to the power coming from the transmission lines that bring basic electricity to our homes and businesses. And it's not always our enemies we need to be wary of, although we know, like I said, Russian hackers 
always seem to be in the news, something about that. They're out there. And the Chinese are too. As well as, like I said, domestic terrorists and our own energy hooligans. But the biggest risk may be overwhelming an already overwhelmed and beat up system that's not ready for today's prime time, let alone the quickly coming ultra prime time as electric vehicles are being pushed by the rising gas prices, government incentives like tax rebates and charging stations. They're going to be building charging stations as part of the infrastructure. And the push to EV, electric vehicles, by manufacturers. But are we being pushed and prodded to do something we're not prepared for and that's not at all well thought out? Are we acting out of emotions instead of intelligence? The grid is fragile, vulnerable, and not prepared to handle the volume of growing electricity demand that's coming. Our cars, buses, including school buses, truck fleets, and I mean, police and fire and ambulance, every government vehicle is going to be electric. That's where they're going. And as fuel demand wanes, as the electric vehicles are out there, the demand for fuel is going to slow down. And charging stations are going to start replacing fuel pumps. There's going to be less fuel options and an ever-increasing demand for electricity and the threat of rolling blackouts. I mean, they're now an inconvenience. They're going to become a major life-threatening reality. In other words, we're playing with fire. So what does all this have to do with inflation or climate change? Do you think electric is free? Do you have solar panels? Let me tell you about my experience, okay? I got an electric Ford Mustang. I love Mustangs. I went to the Ford dealer. I actually went there to buy a pickup truck. (laughs) Long story. (laughs) But anyway, he had this electric Mustang sitting out there. I said, wow, it's a beautiful car. You got to order these cars three, four months in advance. And it was sitting there. He said, yeah, the guy couldn't wait the three or four months. And when it came in, we called him and he had bought the car in the the meantime. So it's there. And yeah, one thing led to the other. Boom. I bought it. I knew. And I I said to my buddy that is the GM of the Ford dealer. I said, Mario, I know I'm looking for trouble here. I know this is going to drive me crazy. All the electronics. It's all like, whoa, man, I have to go to school just to figure it out. But what's really going to get me, I I know is going to be the charging. And it's been a I wouldn't call it a nightmare. I'll put it that way. It's been something to to overcome. But what I didn't understand, and neither did the dealers. Maybe the Tesla dealers are better school. That's all they do. They do it all day long. And these other car dealers don't see it as much, but you have to do a lot. Now, we have solar panels at the house. But even with that, because that's what they tell me, oh, you got solar panels. Just plug it in the house. You got to get the 220 line, which we did. We did all that stuff, and, and I was happy to do it. It cost a couple of bucks, but we did it. And we plug in the car, and I said, oh, this is great. Every time I pass a gas station, I'm laughing. saying, ah, this is terrific. Because the car drives great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, these electric cars are fast. They're smooth. They have a lot of power. All the little you know things that you want in the car, it's terrific. But it takes a little while to learn how to do it all, but I'll I'll learn in time. But what we didn't know was our SDG&E, the electricity rates, I think it was up like five, six hundred bucks the first month. And I go, what's going on? You call the electric company SDG&E and you talk to them and you find out, well, you got to charge it in peak hours. You've got to get a different charging program. And there's a whole bunch of stuff. And if you don't do all that, at the end of the day, your electric bill can literally go through the roof because driving is going to dictate your charging times and places. So if you drive and you come home at 5 or 6 in the afternoon and the peak hours are from 4 to 9 and you plug it in because you got to go someplace first thing in the morning and you got to charge it up and you're all the way down, you've only got 20 or 30%. I mean, it's a challenge. I'm not going to, you know, get into all the little details, but I'm going to tell you, 
it is a challenge. And getting past that, it's a little tricky. So you do it, and I'm doing it. But it's not just pulling up to the pump. So you need gas, you go to the pump. Yeah, it's 6 and $7. I think it's 7 I haven't looked. <laughs> but it's crazy. It's ridiculous. But you think you're going to lower the cost with electric. You may, if you can follow the rules, and until they raise the kilowatt hour cost, because the system gets overwhelmed. It's coming. And the environment? Electricity's dirty. If you go from San Diego to Vegas, there's a long section, I don't know, 50, 75 miles, maybe more, where you kind of drive under these wires that go across the freeway from one side of the desert to the other. And you get your radio on, you get on the cell phone, you hear, in your car, listening to the radio, or certainly on your cell phone, you're going to hear that buzz, the bam, bam, bam. You're going to hear it. It's not like the electricity isn't there. It is. And it takes fuel to make this electricity. It takes fuel to make batteries. Batteries are environmental enemies. Battery disposal is already a big issue. And battery replacement is a big cost. By the way, as is the cost of collision repair on these EV parts, availability, and in general, we're rushing or being rushed into something we know little about. It can become the greatest thing since sliced bread. It really can. Or the worst idea since the Etzel. You remember the Etzel? <laughs> that was a Ford car that was a disaster. But why not slow down? What happened to, what happened to hybrids? If I had to do it all over again right now, I'd buy a hybrid. 38, 40 miles to a gallon of gas. My son has a hybrid. And you're buying gas. But if you get 40 miles to a gallon of gas, I bet you if I did the math and put it side by side with what I'm doing, even with the charge, it's not free. This charging is not free. And I'm telling you, those prices are going to go up. But you know, the hybrids, as usual, when the government gets all in, it's their way or the highway. And in this case, I'm paying for my own way. I should have spent a little more time. But that's what we all should do. Either way, you're going to pay. Oh, by the way, there's another pesky issue, kind of, sort of, knowing that I'm hearing is talking about here. Government control, or as lefty politicians like and Dems seemed to like, along with their morning communism, total control. Because anything less just might remind us of freedom. So go figure when our travel, when our beloved cars and motorbikes, at least, depend on fossil fuels, our travel is dependent on the petroleum industry. So BP, Exxon, Shell, whoever the others are, they're all competing for our business, all dealing with foreign entities like OPEC. Then all of a sudden, boom, Trump unleashes fracking, pipelines, drilling in the Anwar, and we're energy independent. Gas prices go way down and electric cars take a back seat, or maybe just a setback, except for geniuses like Elon Musk. So, by the way, who was Nikola Tesla? Yeah. Anybody know that name? Um, why name a car company? I mean, the guy was a genius, okay? He created alternating current, all right? But he also died broke and alone in his 80s. But... Nonetheless, that was just a departure. I just thought about that because I wrote that down. Gas prices went down to the lowest prices when Trump deregulated, you know, drilling all over. It was great. Gas prices went down. OPEC was falling apart. Putin was in danger of losing his influence on Europe and China. Oh, no. Oh, no. 
<laughs> but here comes Biden to the rescue. Yep, you got it. And then electric cars and bikes got new life. Putin regains his leverage on NATO as Nord Stream 2 is reapproved after Trump shut it down. Now, electric is rocking. EV stands for not just electric vehicles, but everywhere. And government is getting back in control, right? Rolling blackouts, rate commissions. Yeah, who do you think sets the rates for these things? They, they control everything. And we're still in the embryonic stages of this whole thing. So who's going to control the charging stations that the government's building? Does the charging refer to the electric power or the cost? Yeah. Who gets that money? Where's the competition? Hey, it may all be legit. A capitalist, competitive, and consumer-friendly corporate country business environment. But I don't know. This train's going too fast, and I think in the wrong direction, towards PUC. That's Public Utility Commissions. The commission is the part that bothers me, by the way. A legitimization of solar panels, right? And that's fine. But they're out of the reach of most ordinary folks, like apartment dwellers and most renters. So where's all this going? And why not keep the fuel flowing until at least we figure it out? Back to that Nikola Tesla genius, a lot smarter than me and you, but he still died broke, though he invented alternating current, AC, our electricity supply system. Hey, I'm just saying, but I think it's worth talking about and thinking about, especially when you have, I mean, this guy, this president, this Biden, the good part is transparency. That's right. Transparency is always good. It's always good when you can, when you can actually, you know, see the sausage being made. You get to watch it all. So you could just see through everything he's saying. He's lying. He's just coming out there and just saying things out of his ass. He's just saying stupid things. He's blaming everything on the Republicans, on the MAGA, the ultra MAGAs, the supreme MAGAs. What's he doing? This was his doing. It had nothing to do with anybody else. And when I say his, I'm talking about the Democratic Party. We know, obviously, even if he was a legitimate president, nobody does this stuff in a vacuum, okay? There are a whole bunch of people that have to agree with him. As a matter of fact, most people at this point understand Biden's just a puppet. Is he a puppet of Obama or is he a puppet of we don't know who? We, we don't know who. We know that the whole Hunter Biden thing, everything that went on in Ukraine, by the way, and I don't want to get in too deep on this. $40 billion to the Ukraine. I'm all for the Ukrainians. I, I, this is a proxy war. There's no denying it. And we do want the Ukrainians to kick the Russians out of every part of Ukraine. But so does NATO. You know, it's a conundrum. Are we going to spend all this money and get all involved in a war? And if we don't, and Russia does succeed in even getting a part of what they're looking to do. They're going to Poland next. We know that. Putin has already said that. We know what they want to do. We're just stuck if we do and we're stuck if we don't. But 40 billion, why isn't, you know, one of the things that everybody was saying, Trump was so hard on NATO. Was it? No, he wasn't. He made NATO responsible. He brought them together. He told them they had to come up with their 2%. 2%. And they were all behind. I think there was one country or two countries that were close to 2%. But they were all behind. And he filled their coffers with enough money so they actually can perhaps get involved. Well, why don't they? Why does it fall on us to come up with this kind of money? to bail out Ukraine, to send them. This should be on NATO, everybody in NATO. And I don't hear anything about that. 
I don't hear anybody pushing. I know the UK is stepping up, Germany's stepping I get it. But are they stepping up enough? Are we pushing them hard enough? What would Donald Trump do? Yeah, WWDTD. What would Donald Trump do? That's what I want to know. Because we don't have baby formula. The shelves are empty. We have all these problems, all these issues. Gas prices are through the roof. The average American family is being taxed to death by inflation. You're taxed by the government, the government program. Whether they're collecting money out of your pocket or just charging you more for everything. Butter, eggs, milk, everything. Yes, the biggest and the most visible is the price at the pump. And that dictates everything because it's the cost of delivering the goods to the grocery stores all over the country and everything else. It's all there. It's all the government. But why is it that we're the ones that are paying the price? Obviously, it's because of leadership. But is there corruption here? What does the Ukraine have on Biden? What does Zelensky have on Biden? Oh, you don't want to hear that? I'm not sitting there agreeing with Tucker Carlson or Tulsi Gabbard. I like both of them. Don't get me wrong. There is a middle ground here. It's not we're either going to you know, be with them or we're not going to be with them. There's got to be something that takes a little more thinking, a little more intelligence than we're seeing from our government, from our leaders today. And that's the big problem. We've talked about it before. Leadership. It's not just whether it's Democrat or Republican. I, I, listen, Democrats, Republicans, we don't have intelligence, competent leaders. We don't have them either way, but definitely on the Democrat side. I'm not so sure on the Republican side. You know, I'm not a fan of Kevin McCarthy. Nice guy, I think. I don't know him. He seems to have all, all his ducks in a row as far as what he says. But then he, he let, what, I think it was 13 Republicans vote for the infrastructure bill. Basically, we passed that infrastructure bill. I think that was a trillion, 200 billion, I mean, some huge number that fueled inflation. It's not going to get done. I think 9% of the money actually goes for infrastructure. The rest of it goes for more of these, you know, Democrat liberal policies. And it's, it's money down the drain. Look, I'm not a expert on EV, okay? Nor am I railing against EV. I'm saying I'm suspicious. I'm suspicious of not just the quality, the competence, of, and also of the reasons, the motives of why this government is pushing electric down our throats. Why? What are they doing in the Ukraine? What are they doing about this inflation? It would be so easy. And you don't have to do it. They haven't opened one acre of drilling land to drill for oil. Not one. Why are they doing this? Our enemies would be doing this to us, not our own. This is fifth column stuff. We need to take a step back and take a long, hard look at this. And where are the Republicans? I want to see a, a lot more. I know elections have consequences. Make more noise. They don't have the majority in either the House or the Senate. I get it. But they have the ear of the people. Come out. Say these things. Hate the bully pulpit. You got Biden up there? You don't need to let him stand in front of the people and stutter and say silly things and stupid things and misstatements left and right. Make your own pulpit. Do your own press conferences. You got the power. Get those network stations, those cable stations to put it out there. They'll do it. Listen, they go out there and they show the country the Trump rallies, don't they? They get DeSantis out there. Why? Because he's a strong leader and he demands that they listen to him. He takes on Disney and they pay attention. Take a look at the governor of Texas. He does the same thing. Do things. Get out there and do something because 
You have got to, if you're a, a, a Republican out there, you're an active Republican politician. You better do whatever it takes to get every vote because you're going to need each and every vote. If you're going to take back Congress this coming November, you better get to work. All I'm seeing is this stuff on cable news. Polls. A bunch of polls. I want to see a bunch of hardworking politicians. I want to see them getting out there doing things. You know, I wanted to talk about eugenics. I wanted to talk about what's going on today with this whole Roe v. Wade. But we're not going to get to that. But we're going to get to that next week. But meanwhile, I think we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of politicians that we have to talk to. We have a lot of things that we have to do as citizens. We really have to get on all those people that are elected that's supposed to represent us. If they're not representing us, we got to let them know it. This is a great country because it's of, for, and by the people. So it's up to us. We're the people. We're the ones that make this country run. So let's get out there, inspire our friends. It's a great country. Let's keep it great. I don't want to be in the situation that my grandparents were in. And I don't think we are. I don't think we should be. I don't want to hear all the panic stuff. People say, oh, my God, we're running into the ditch. We're going off the cliff. It's going to be horrible and terrible, and we're in the worst situation. We've been in worse situations. We've been in war. We, we've had things. We don't want to be in World War III. We can prevent it. We don't want to see the Chinese taking Taiwan. We can prevent it. We want to make sure our military, peace through strength. We want to make sure we have the strongest, the most potent military on the planet. So let's just make sure that we hold their feet to the fire. I'm New York Mike. This is Roll Right Radio. Thank you for listening, for being there. And uh, I'm out. Thanks for listening to the Roll Right Radio podcast. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.